What's up, everybody? Welcome to the TMI Podcast. Today we have Isaac. And Kate. And Kate, I have a question for you. What are you studying specifically about suicide? So the research that I do is connected with how suicide is affected by um, factors such as phone use, um, sleep, social interactions, um, Yeah, so basically it's just looking at a lot of external factors and trying to figure out how that affects um, people's suicidal ideations. That's interesting. What, what, is the, um, like, what is the point of the research? What's the end goal? What's the hope? So the end goal, um, I'm not quite sure. I believe it's to figure out like an app so that people can have on their phones that like, sort of tracks like, people's movement, their sleep patterns, their phone use, and then sort of uses it and then sends people push notifications to... Wow. Um, say, hey, it looks like you um, have all these things, and typically when you have all these factors together, you feel more depressed. Therefore, be, take extra time with your mental health, be more careful, maybe seek help if you need it, and just have it like kind of externally monitoring how people are doing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I heard you talk earlier when we discussed this about... You just mentioned the term uh, ideation, right? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned to me two factors that are necessary for someone to commit suicide, take their own life. Yeah. And ideation is one of those, but can you elaborate on both of them? So, yeah. So for someone to have, to commit suicide, basically they need like two things. One is the suicidal ideations. Those are the thoughts that people have that they want to die, that they want to like um, kill themselves, that they... Um, whatever plans they have but and then there's the actual like means of killing themselves so any like active steps so there's like basically a mental thing and then also a physical thing so you need like both the thoughts and then like the capacity to do your self-harm and these play into some of the commonly cited suicide statistics these factors like we talked about how uh, males might have the oppor- the uh, the physical mm-hmm. they might be in certain situations like working uh, for example a, a job with a higher mortality rate they're exposed to the kind of things that could kill them because uh, that's one thing that I've heard frequently is that males kill themselves more I'm sure it, it, you can reduce it to those two factors in some sort yeah so the reason why men are more likely to kill themselves is men tend to choose more lethal methods of suicide. Like they're more likely to use firearms or to hang themselves, whereas women um, tend to choose less lethal forms of suicide, such as like overdosing or um, drowning. Um, there are like multiple factors that play into this. So one reason is that women do this is because if it doesn't work out and they don't end up dying, a lot of the times they don't want like the cosmetic like impact of like say like having to get facial reconstruction mm-hmm. surgery, or they also tend to be more conscious of like the people around them and say, oh, like I don't necessarily want someone to have to like clean this up afterwards. So therefore, if I just take all these pills, it'll just ju- be just like going to sleep and then it'll be less traumatic for the person who walks in and, like, finds me. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really interesting. But men don't have that same... At right. least typically they don't have that same belief. That is interesting. Uh, I have two tracks of thought, so I'll chase the first one right now, which is uh, more into the socially commonly cited 
facts about suicide or mm-hmm. statistics about suicide. Um, have you noticed trends with age groups in suicide? So I haven't really specifically looked into age trends. It is more, I believe it's more common among like young adults, but then also older adults. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's mostly due to like, so older adults, they tend to be more socially isolated, whereas younger adults, they tend to be more in a less stable like form of life mm-hmm. where if they're like going off to college or like leaving home for the first time or like going through puberty like hormones can affect um depression and suicide so i think those are where it's most common but i don't actually know for sure the, i'll pluck one of these studies mm-hmm. before i go to the other uh topic that i want to discuss but why do you think uh, you listed some of the factors, like being away from home, like uh, just an environmental factor. You know, you're mm-hmm. in a new place. Um, but what is it about being a teenager, being a young, young adult, that you have this, you know, traditional angst, mm-hmm. this uh, very, for example, dramatic ways of thinking, um, intense ways of thinking. Um, and you talked about perhaps a chemical element. You're a neuroscience major, mm-hmm. so maybe you've discovered something uh, new about that but and maybe just from what you personally think what is it about being a young person that makes life difficult makes you want to remove yourself well I think first like hormones play a huge role because that really affects like your brain chemistry because you go from being like a child and like being sort of told what to do like you're listening to your parents your teachers and then it's sort of the transition to adulthood where you're expected to like make all those decisions for yourself so that's like a lot for your brain to do and then like just like hormones they're affecting like how you think and how you view the world Mm -hmm. so that plays into it um but then also like leaving home like social support and family support is like really important because if you don't have a community humans are social creatures by nature and if you don't have a community then you're like missing out on one of those like really basic needs so if you're looking at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs you've got the food water shelter the bottom air But then you've also got um, things like, I think social structures is like right above that because that's super important to like your mental well-being in general. So I think, and then just like life gets more stressful as you like transition into being an adult to just making all your own decisions, having to be responsible for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like a time of huge change. And I think that really plays into mental health. Also, you've, you've mentioned the social isolation part a few times. Uh, what's, what, why is that so powerfully... Number one, why is that so powerfully associated with suicide? And how is interacting in a social online interface, which you would think mm-hmm. would make you more socially plugged in, uh, how does that generally lead people to be more isolated instead? So humans are social creatures, which I've mentioned before, but it's we're made to like connect with other people like we want to be around other people we want to talk to other people it if we're not around other people you're not as going to be as happy like you may still like have fulfilling things in your life but without like connection you're not really like fulfilling like one of your purposes as a person and then so with online stuff it's really interesting because it can really just depend on the person and what you're doing online So if you are just scrolling through social media and just consuming, 
then it tends to be more negative and you feel more isolated because you're more likely to compare yourself and say, oh, she's prettier than I am. He's got more money than I do and I'm just failing in life. But if you're using social media to like connect with people and you're using Facebook to talk to people, to catch up with people, like people you used to know in high school or you're meeting new people online, that can be really good. It's not as good as like inter- in-person interactions generally, mm-hmm. but it tends to be better than nothing. But it just depends on what you're doing online, which is like what I'm interested in studying and like looking at like the data that we have is I want to know if like the more active and engaged you are online, if that helps more than just like consuming digital media, Mm -hmm. if those trends play into like suicidal ideations and behaviors. Um, So... Yeah, it does seem counterintuitive, but it also makes sense from personal experience. Probably mm-hmm. those who use social media find themselves socially drained after not interacting with people for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like just these ghost interactions, lots of comparisons. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the age statistics or general demographics affected by this social media disentanglement from being plugged in from the social mainframe? I genuinely do not know any of like, <laughs> the statistics regarding age in social media. What about gender? It tends to be harder on women, I believe. But I think women are just tend to be, are we're socialized by society to be more social and to connect more than mm-hmm. men are and to build more emotional connections. So it tends to be worse for women if they're just consuming social media and just comparing. But it's, I mean, it really just depends on the person. Suicide is a very like individualized thing. Right. Well, what do you mean by individualized? Is that in the in the sense of, I guess, in both factors, ideation and mm-hmm. how one would carry out that plan? I'm sure it varies within different cultures. Yeah. So, for instance, just culturally it varies, age-wise it varies, because everyone's different and everyone has, like, different, um, it's coming from different circumstances, different backgrounds. So it just affects, like, people differently. So, for instance, like, I personally, like, am fine, like, with fewer social interactions than other people. I'm fairly introverted. Mm -hmm. But then, like, so not having a lot of social interaction, that's better for me. But then um, it's really hard when I'm, like, separated from, like, my family, for instance. Like, I'm more likely to be um, just not in as great of a place mental Mm health-wise. So suicide just really... It's different for everyone, which can make it hard to study. Like, there are trends that we can follow. We know that social isolation is um, something that often predicts it. We know that um, there are, like, just really big general trends, but it's every person is, like, an individual thing, which is why I think the research that we're doing in my lab is, like, important because we're looking at people and, like, having, like, it track, like, things, different things for each person and Mm -hmm. noticing, like, the different um, factors that contribute it. And I think that's important. It's like an app mm-hmm. that's a helpful friend, you know, like a supportive yeah. friend that's really paying attention to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful use of technology. Uh, but it also makes me question why am I, why can't I be that friend too, you know, like yeah. to notice my friend's habits and like, oh, you've been getting this much sleep, you've been really on your phone 
staring at it. And I, you, I feel like you can also tell in people's demeanor, you know, with their body language. It's not something you just have, you mm-hmm. have to read a book about. You know, it's something that you can just kind of feel. Anybody can feel it, even like kids, even dogs, yeah. I think. Like, I remember, this is a sad story time from Isaac. Um, uh, my donkey died. This is a very Alabama story. My donkey died a long time ago. I say my donkey. I mean, it was it wasn't just mine. It was my family's donkey, and it was. I mean, it it was there to clear out land, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, because donkeys are really good at eating brush, and they also keep coyotes away and uh, snakes. So, for any future agriculturalists out there, you're gonna have to uh, remember that. Yeah, to write that down. Donkeys are a very useful animal. They're they're defensive. They got they're feisty. They got a great mm-hmm. personality, um, and. This donkey protected our chickens and cleared out some land. That's what that was its purpose, as well as being our friend, <laughs> this donkey. And one, oh, it's a long, it's a long story, but we had to put it put it mm-hmm. out one day. And uh, after some injuries, it was a tragic situation. It wasn't like mm-hmm. just an old age say goodbye. It was like it it got uh, attacked by some other animals. So that was a. Uh, I just remember putting my hat over my head and crying when I walked home. Long story, I was the only person at my house. Mm-hmm. So some a family friend came and shot the donkey for us, and then I was just home alone. Very depressing moment. <laughs> Sounds so like I'm it. walking back, no family, uh, just by myself. And when I walk back home, my dog came and, like, licked my eyes, you know, because there were tears there. I just sat and snuggled with my dog for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, I just felt so much better. And it was just a dog. It wasn't even, like, a real person, you know? I think a lot of people feel that way about dogs. Like, they're so supportive, and uh, they're, they can, like, detect how you're feeling, I guess. I've never had a dog, so I can't really relate. That's but... okay. <laughs> Maybe, uh, I mean, you probably have people that help you do that. Mm-hmm. Like, they notice how you feel. And... But I guess what I'm saying is the idea that this app needs to be created... I mean, it's kind of sad. And I guess it's true. The people, the app is designed to help are the people who might not have the friends that would be more than likely to help. But then also, even if I recognize those trends in someone, I don't know if I would be capable, I'd be scared to have a conversation, you know, to say, like, Mm -hmm. the word suicide even is kind of jarring and could create distance. So... A lot of the times when people commit suicide, what you hear from like their family and friends is, oh, it was out of the blue, it was like a spontaneous thing. That's generally not the case. Like very rarely is suicide just like a spontaneous thing. It's generally like premeditated, but a lot of times other people don't notice. We are not the observant people we think we are. Mm. And also people tend to hide it because if they're in pain, they're hurting inside, they don't necessarily want other people to know. Yeah. Which is really important. But then going to what you said about like if one of your friends was struggling and you had noticed, you you should talk to them. You should reach out because a lot of the times people want, they want that connection with other people and like forming those deep emotional connections is really important. And honestly, just open up the conversation, which sounds really easy, but in practice, it's really hard it's to difficult. do. Yeah, this, this reminds mm-hmm. me, for example, of, uh, like, sexual violence. Yeah. Like, it's really difficult to talk to somebody about that. Like, in, a lot of people have the desire to help, but they're like, 
I lack the words. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I could cause damage. We've talked to somebody on the podcast, Jada Brown, about this and why. You know, it's we're still almost in a conversation phase. You know, mm-hmm. which, which is why a lot of people, a lot of movements, uh, socially are about opening a new conversation, mm-hmm. which I think is an important first step. I think that they always should be should work. They should be quickly followed by a solution organization or something to help solve the problem. Because opening conversation without coming up with the solution can be damaging, I think. So I think that this research with a potential path of mm-hmm. let's create something that might be a solution is really nice. So, yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting discussion, like what if we could uh, collectively do a little bit better. So a few problems. I like to analyze what the obstacles would be mm-hmm. to me taking your advice. It's sound advice, and I understand it logically. Uh, but... Some people that I feel like I see struggling are not people that I really know. So they're people that I don't, maybe uh, that I see semi-frequently, mm-hmm. a few times a week, you know. Maybe I sit next to them in a class and stuff like that. Um, and I don't feel like, ooh, it's not really my responsibility. You know, this guy's got a roommate, this guy's got uh, a girlfriend, something, so on. And then, oh, there's a, there's a name for this phenomenon. Um it's when everybody, like for example, there's a person that's like collapsed on the ground and everybody, the bystander, the bystander effect. effect. Thank you, you so much. I guess it's a little bit of the bystander effect mm-hmm. that I just see this person, they look really sad. They have the following signs. Uh, I just had an idea of how this could be treated. You don't have to say, hey, I think you might be suicidal. Would you like to have a conversation? <laughs> yeah, that's not necessarily the way to approach it. That's not the way to approach it. You could just try to be friendly, I guess. Yeah. Am I on the right track? I think definitely starting out with, like, just, hey, how are you doing today? You know, and then, like, listening to what they have to say. And, like, generally, if people ask, how, how are you doing, Isaac? What do you say? I just say I'm good. Yeah. And so, like, I'm like, I'm good. And, but are you always good when you say that? No. Why do, why do we always say that? Because I think we just want, like, the easy, we want to gloss over our own problems. Why do we want to gloss over our own problems? It seems like to me, so I have two things to say about this. Number one, I spent some time in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you learn Russian, you, pretty, you learn kakula, how are you? Or it means how are your engagements, how are your things? And you say that, and then you assume that's the greeting, that's not the greeting. You're not supposed to say, how are you doing, unless you have a friendship with someone. How you're doing isn't a colloquial question. Mm-hmm. You could say hello or zdrasvice, which really means, like, live long, which is really interesting, kind of like an ancient uh, thing. But kagyala is not something you say, oh, hey, walk past somebody. Now, how you doing? That's what we say in the United States. But I think it's actually really beautiful that in Eastern Europe, because it's not just Ukraine, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, Russia and a lot of other countries, uh, they're traditionally stoic people is how we view them in the United States. But after you just create a relationship, maybe show a sacrifice, you know, you buy something for mm-hmm. them, but you just say, I would like to be your friend, um, and you're sincere. I mean, you get this, like, you know, you crack open the rough exterior, you could say. And then when you say kaitila to somebody that you really like, they will actually tell you how they are, mm-hmm. you know? With sincerity, this is what's been good. These are the events that have been happening. I'm in a poor mental state because this happened in my life, you know? And then you actually have a conversation about how the person's doing. And I was basically unfamiliar with this Mm -hmm. until having this conversation, these conversations in Ukraine. Like, whoa, we actually just 
mutually discussed how we were doing. And it encouraged a reciprocal openness in myself, which I think I still carry a little bit with myself in the sense that I feel like in a large public uh, situation, uh, you know, like in a big crowd, you can tell when how are you doing is a greeting and how Mm -hmm. are you doing might be an invitation for a different discussion. But it just... uh, uh, that's example number one. There are societies where it works when, when you say how you're doing, you actually get an answer. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to adopt that practice a little bit more. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was, why, why do we want to hide our suffering? Like, and th- this isn't just an us thing. You know, there's definitely cultures that do different things. Uh, I'm thinking evolutionarily we as a species would be afraid to show weakness? I think that definitely plays a role into it. Um, I think we just want to be okay. I think we want to be living our best lives Mm -hmm. and to be happy. And oftentimes, I think that it just, we are trying to live the life that we hope that we are living even if it's not really the case like in a way you're almost lying to yourself and if you say like if someone asks how you're doing but you're having a really bad day but you say well I'm doing well you're just you're you I think that's that internal desire of you wish that you were that's almost speaking instead of wanting to like actually share yeah I feel like that does reflect Mm -hmm. some uh American values you know like Definitely. The, the American dream to have a desire and to achieve the desire, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, you can make something of yourself that's better than who you are. You can achieve these dreams. And you have to start with fantas- with a fantasy, you know? Like, one of the greatest American dream stories is The Princess and the Frog. <laughs> and Tiana, I mean, like, the first 20, 30 minutes, like, you have all these montages of why she loves cooking mm-hmm. and her... this really awesome song about what her restaurant's going to be like, you know? And when you really get to the nuts and bolts, she doesn't have any money. She gets duped, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, all of these fantasies, she's been working so hard, but they're really still fantasies. Yeah. And the only way to achieve her goal was definitely to manifest that confidence and to be hopeful. But in truth, she, like, didn't mm-hmm. get that goal. And I, I think Tiana's actually a great example, you know? Like, she's really hopeful, uh, she's confident in herself. And when she ran into problems, she just tried to come up with a solution and kept mm-hmm. moving forward. So I think that's beautiful. Uh, but with that ideology behind our, yeah, I'm good, mm-hmm. it kind of makes a little bit of sense as an American. I also think uh, calling back the gender dynamics, like as a man, especially from an evolutionary perspective, to be a, in the reproductive competition, you know, and then, you know, you're trying to pass on your genes. You have to be dominant in some way. There's generally violence or um, a precursor to violence, mm-hmm. like making sounds or uh, showing your feathers, if you will. And so, like, a weakness displayed in that process um, is a horrible idea. Yeah. And there's an interesting example of this um, that makes a lot of sense when you explain it, but uh, rams have these like really powerful horns and they they're the males actually do butt heads mm-hmm. so that's what the horns are used for and the horns are used like that in a lot of horn mammals but 
the Rams specifically, you can imagine they they step back. You should see them like they step back. They do like mm-hmm. the wind up apart from each other. You know, they're like perfect trajectory, and they run towards each other at full speed. And they have these special muscles in their neck, mm-hmm. you know, that make them like that. Let's fix their head in this like, you know, perfect attack position. And so they they've got the biology for it. Like they're made for it. The males are. The females mm-hmm. don't even have all these muscles, and obviously they like the horns. So it's it's really there's a lot of sexual dimorphism within the organism, and they they uh, they tighten these muscles designed to hold their head in place as they run towards each other. What's interesting is. Uh, you, it's intuitive, but you have to be confident before you begin to run. Mm-hmm. If you choose not to be confident at any point and relax those tightened muscles, you'll die instantly. They'll break your neck. So you can survive and then be injured if you just stay really tight and confident like you are about to just blow this other ram over. So what this uh, represents is... In some fashion, a lot of male competition has this uh, aspect because this isn't just the ram analogy is is good. It's not just analogy; it's real. Yeah. But uh, kind of that comparison with male competition to be unconfident when you approach the other male is almost a death sentence, especially in physical competition. But reproductively, it could be a death mm-hmm. sentence. Like if you have no confidence, you know, you, you're the peacock and you just have these droopy feathers and you move your neck a little bit and you're like, mm-hmm. ah, I'm not really into this. That's it, you know? You never get mated yeah. with. You go die in a ditch, you know? So there, and there are, and I'm not qualified to talk about them, I wish I knew them more, but there are systems that have to do with testosterone, mm-hmm. specifically in mammals, that are related to this system of, you're a male, be confident, don't show the weakness, it's time to compete. So I definitely think those play a factor in why, at least from my perspective, I know hiding a weakness is has been an advantage in the past. Where if you could hide it well enough and just like try to get mm-hmm. by it in the competition, at least you could have uh, these lower tier mates, or at least you could come out of the fight mm-hmm. with survival. So I understand why there's a wiring, perhaps, uh, of denial of your problem. But I also see, conversely, uh, in a social species, which we are, and hardly any animals are social. We're the most social of all animals, but animals like ants, termites, you know, they also uh, get together in these huge colonies. And then other primates and dolphins, and they have, like, super cool social structures. But, like, um, I feel like to have a weakness and to say to the people that you love and trust, like, I'm having a problem. Like, can you help me? Mm-hmm. Is a genius strategy. And, like, there are people who take their own lives in deep, committed relationships that feel like, and their spouse loves them and mm-hmm. is just shocked that they would take their life for children who have parents that genuinely do love them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. what What's the... Is there a solution here? I'm not really presenting a solution. I'm just kind of calling attention to a So problem. what you're leaning into is the idea of perceived burdens, burdensomeness. So oftentimes, people tend to think of, like, suicide, at least from the outside, as, like, a really selfish act. Like, you mentioned parents who commit suicide when they still have children, mm-hmm. and we think of that like, oh, why didn't they, you know, take care of their children, you know, like they need to live for their children. But genuinely what those people are believing is that the world will be a better off place, their kids will be better off, their spouse would be better off if they weren't around in that world. And so 
it's really hard because if you don't feel like you fit in in your society, you just feel like a burden on everyone else and everyone else is being nice to you simply because they have to be. Mm. And that everyone else would be better off if you just simply weren't around. Mm. How, how do you... Uh, I mean, that's difficult to talk to someone kind of cognitively set. Mm-hmm. Like, because if you said, no, we love you, we want you to be here. It just sounds kind of... It sounds insincere and yeah. kind of fake. Uh, how can you convince them of your sincerity? I think it would just depend on your situation. And I think you just have to be genuine and open up, too. And be, just be a friend first. Because mm-hmm. I think that's what people need more than anything is support and love. But also, people need things to do. Like, it's not just enough to support someone and say, oh, I'm here for you. But, mm-hmm. like make sure that they play a role in your life as well. So yeah. if you if people have like a purpose, something to live for, then they're way more likely to push through it and seek help and go to therapy or take antidepressants mm-hmm. than if they just feel like like the, even if they know people are supporting them, like they feel that people are only supporting them because they have right. to. Yeah. That's not the only cognitive trap that mm-hmm. we fall into. I mean, there's a lot of self-convincing. Our brains are so powerful that we can we can make a cognitive wall that is yeah. impenetrable, you know? Uh, so I think that's really useful. You talked a little bit about some of the solutions that people automatically think of when it comes to suicide, like therapy, mm-hmm. antidepressants, uh, which kind of, kind of uh, categorize maybe, you know, the chemical help. Mm-hmm. The very a human kind of that we think of that are like you know um, mechanistic versus the human care and we've talked a, lo- mm-hmm. a lot about the you know being a good friend having good conversations uh, do you have anything to say about um, medication slash the chemical help I think that medications are really really great because oftentimes what they're just faulty neurotransmitter systems, which I'm sure you know all about. <laughs> We're in the same class. <laughs> yeah. Gotta love neurobiology. But so those really help. They step up when your brain is not necessarily doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's not releasing all the serotonin, the catecholamines mm-hmm. that you're supposed to have, or it's breaking them down too quickly. So it's great. It like really helps people and helps them say, oh, like, this isn't how life's supposed to be. Like, I don't have to be sad all the time. Or their life can be happy. So that's really, medication's really good. Um, I thought while you were talking about medication, but of two things. Number one, there are people who get really uncomfortable when you talk about medication and our brains. You know, we, d- we didn't really encounter that uncomfortability Mm-hmm. Uh, with other medical inventions, you know, we thought that was kind of normal. And I think it's because deeply we as humans, we, the idea of a spirit, you know, the deeper you, the, the you, mind, the mind we've, we've separated that from our brain for so long. And it's only converging now in the scientific community where, uh, and we've done this with hallucinogens for thousands of years, but without... Yeah, but that's why, I mean, hallucinogens were used mostly for religious ceremonies, the activation of a mind, a spiritual thing, because it interacted with our consciousness, and there was no other route for us to explain that. 
So I'm offering one uh, possible reason why I think people get uncomfortable with the medication interacting with your mind. And I'm sure there are lots of other ones. You know, there are religious reasons, political reasons. Some people are afraid, well, if you can, if, if you can alter my mind, who's to say that a greater power couldn't begin using these substances to alter my mind and in some way control the things that I'm doing? Um, what would you say to people who uh, are, are um, against, I guess, medication that can alter your mind? How, how do you feel like it navigates this? I would say almost every like medical advance has people have met, been met with backlash. Like For instance, like um, smallpox inoculations. Those took years and years to catch on. Like They were practicing that in India and like other um, Asian countries for like centuries before it like came over to Europe and then when it did come to Europe it took quite a while for people to say oh hey like this is actually a good thing or hand washing um doctors were really opposed to the idea that their hands were dirty and that they (laughs) were um they they were the reason their patients were dying Mm -hmm. so I think just anything to do with our brains it's a neuroscience is a pretty new thing Mm -hmm. we've it's only in the past like century that we've moved on from watching people hit their heads and then seeing what happens afterwards to figure out how the brain works. Right. So it's just new to people, and I think people just don't necessarily trust it. They don't. I think people don't have a lot of trust in pharmacy companies these days. Right. Not without reason. Right. I totally agree. Uh, your this potential app of development mm-hmm. has. Uh, the same type of concern that a lot of people have, which now, oh, technology is doing this job. Yeah. And I think that has valid fears as well. But how, how could you still advocate and say this technology could be helpful for this purpose? I think not putting all your trust in the technology and not just relying solely on it, but using it as like a helpful, just like as a helpful metric mm. and saying, oh, this is saying this. And so maybe I should listen to it, but then also being in tune with like yourself to know that like it may not always be correct. Because I, for instance, probably would be really resistant to using an app to track my mental health, mm-hmm. or at least one that was going to tell me and like predict things because I am quite obstinate and I don't like people telling me what to do. Right. So I don't think I would particularly enjoy having an app that did that for me. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I might actually it might actually be really useful. But I think the way the app was set up as well, like if it was just run by like a huge company, people would be more resistant to it. Right. So I don't know. It would depend on how it was developed, how it was written, whether it was more of like a small project versus like a big like commercial endeavor. Right. Uh, okay, so we've. I think we've talked about three things: uh, big corporations. Mm-hmm. Let's say big institutions instead, because I don't want to just say, you know, the the things that thrive in a free market, but also political institutions and so on. Um, also, uh, we've talked about medical innovation, mm-hmm. and we've talked about technological innovation. I think these are some of the biggest dist- sources of distrust in our current society. I'm more specifically talking about the United States. Um, I'm sure this is pretty uh, common though. But I, 
I really want to cultivate mm -hmm. a healthy trust in these things. I think they're good. I, I don't want to say that. I think they're scalers. You know, mm -hmm. they're not. They're neither good nor bad. They don't have a direction. Depends on how you use them. It depends on how you use them. And I think there are tools. And what you really you you were describing was if we see technology as a tool. You know, never nobody ever thought a hammer was going to put the nail in by itself. You know, everybody always knew you have to pick up the mm -hmm. hammer. You got to put the nail in the right spot. And when you put the nail in the wrong spot, we always thought it was our fault, not the nail's fault. You know, this is kind of intuitive to understand with simple tools. I always thought it was the wood's fault. <laughs> Gosh dang! We do blame inanimate objects though for things, uh, but we also blame. I mean, it, we when technology seems to have this bigger pull in our life, it becomes harder to distinguish mm -hmm. if it was a technologist's fault or if, if it was user user error. You know, um, but I want to restore especially in the scientific community, a, tr a greater trust, you know, where if we come, if we encounter, for example, as we recently did in a pandemic, mm -hmm. right, that we had a base level of trust in some type of institution that could develop some type of solution that we could accept. And if we, and the solution was a good solution, and those people in the institution had our best interests in mind. Uh, but I mean, there's so many problems we can run into that are not that are not just viruses that will need help from the scientific community to solve. You know, I get to think of so many, including the mental health uh, epidemic. You could say where we've called a lot more attention to things like depression and anxiety and addiction and suicide, which are really big problems. So I'm curious in maybe some of the things that you might think about how we could restore the healthiest kind of trust. Because I'm not advocating mm -hmm. for a complete trust. I think that puts us... That's not a great place to be right. either. You it's need just balance. the opposite place of maybe... It's, it's, a, it's too extreme. But, uh, and I think some people most likely do trust too much in the scientific community, even mm -hmm. as it is right now, or in certain institutions. But to, to distribute that trust throughout a society in the healthiest way, what are some ways we can do that? So there's actually a great BYU forum about this <laughs> um, a week or two ago from Shailen Romney Garrett. But she was talking about how in America we sort of cycled between like phases of being like really community focused and then phases of being very individual focused. Mm -hmm. And right now we're more of like an individualistic phase. Mm -hmm. So that's really been helped by increased access to like mobile phones and the internet that's really led us to be way more individualistic than we have in the past. But we need to move back more towards the community and like trust other people. Um, it's hard to trust. It is. Especially like I don't assume any corporation has anything but like their profits. Right. Like, you know, they just want to make money from me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm going to resist probably anything that gives any corporation too much power. Or at least I say that. And then, I mean, I still use, like, Google and Instagram. <laughs> right. And they're selling all my data, I'm sure. So. And then and then I'm assuming if it's a sine wave, you know, mm -hmm. like, you get more community-focused, then eventually we'll get too community-focused, you know? And then I mean, that's, that's happened in a lot of places mm -hmm. in the world throughout time. Well, then it leads to things more of like if you're in a really tight-knit community, you're more likely to really not like anyone who's outside of your community, and that tends right. to lead more towards racism or genocide or 
all those things that basically result from people being so community focused that they're not willing to like look outwards at other people. Right. Also, uh, it's a lot. People are more likely to rebel. They don't feel like they have a space. Adolescence mm-hmm. is way harder. I feel like in a community based. You know that if if in your time of self discovery, you're offered, well, you can become this thing, or maybe this thing. And those are your two binary options mm-hmm. of who you can become. So restrictive, it just, you know, it's very difficult to develop. And I would argue it's even not very healthy to develop in a place where you're given no options, mm-hmm. you know, to grow and develop, to, to seek yourself out, I guess, and even make a few healthy mistakes. This is a parenting discussion now, basically. <laughs> um, for non-existent children. <laughs> right. For my future kids listening to this podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about you. Uh. <laughs> and now you can go to Isaac many years down the road and be like, see, you said this years ago, and uh, all the ways he's messed up as a dad, you can bring it up and That's right. tell him. I hope you start your own podcast, Future Child. But you, you can just be a guest on mine, because hopefully I'll have a nice and successful one by then. And then I can, I don't know, blow up your Instagram or something. Mm-hmm. I'll be a cool dad. Be one of those families whose whole lives are online. Not me. I, I, yeah, so here's an interesting... So I've talked about what I think society should do, but I'll tell you what I think I'm going to do, mm-hmm. which is probably a little bit antithetical. But uh, I recently deleted, like, I didn't delete the accounts, deleted the apps of my social media. And I think when I get married, we'll have an iPad with social media on it. And then if we want to use social media, we'll just use the iPad. And in general, we won't use it, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, if if smartphones weren't the only kind of phones that had really nice cameras and video capacity, mm-hmm. and there were a few other things that Matt and I were talking about of like what smartphones give us besides all the apps and the really distractive things mm-hmm. that are really nice. I mean, it's an amazing tool. It's got a super good flashlight. The camera is like so good. It's such a high quality camera. Uh, you can do things with Google Photos, so you can back up all of these yeah. memories that you make immediately. Uh, there's just like a lot of tools in there that just make it really nice. So it's like like you said, but I still use Google. I still support big corporations. It, in the most ridiculous way, it's kind of impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least it, where we're living. I mean, we're living in a first world country at a nice university, so we're definitely not representative of a global population. But I do think, hopefully we can bring this full circle back to what we were talking about, because I think it is related. But before I, when I deleted Instagram, uh, I'm sure so many adolescents have a story like this, where they're just like, I was fed up with getting distracted. Mm -hmm. I got that one notification that says, like, you spent this much hours per day on your phone this week. And you're like, oh my, I can't do this anymore. Like, it's so bad. And then you realize, like, you forgot to do an assignment last week and your exam was mm-hmm. bad. And you're like, this is probably why. I gotta just stop spending so much time. Yeah. Anyway, so I had one of these dramatic moments. I deleted stuff. And the next Saturday, I went into literally the mountains and just sat next to a creek, crisscross applesauce, mm-hmm. and meditated for a while. And I am somewhat familiar with the practice of mindful meditation. So it wasn't that weird for me. Uh, but it wasn't something I had been doing consistently, so. But it was so nice. Mm-hmm. I I, like kind of you know woke up from my meditation, and there was like a little fly on my finger, 
And I just like really slowly moved and watched it. And it didn't move away. It was like just walking around. And I was just like, yeah, this doesn't bother me anymore. And I can, I can just focus on this little fly. I'm not thinking about all the other stuff I have to do. I'm not thinking about what's on my apps. I'm not thinking about any of my assignments. Mm-hmm. I was just like, just chilling with this fly <laughs> on a mountain. I was having You're a great inspiring time. me. I think I'm going to go delete my Instagram off my phone Maybe after you this. But you see what I'm saying? It's, it's a little bit... I, I'm doing it for my own personal mm-hmm. growth. It's not necessarily because I think Instagram is bad. Like you said, there are things... It's a tool. It's a tool. It can be used for good or evil. Uh, like all tools. Like a hammer. It's a great You can use a hammer to build a house, and you can also use a hammer to... Brutally murder. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of. I knew you were going to say that. That's what I was it thinking, It always too. comes back to murder. <laughs> exactly right. That's just the nature of tools. Um, but I do think... Man, like mentally, I'm better when I'm outdoors, mm-hmm. when I'm absorbing sunlight. I'm Vitamin doing better D. mentally when there's sun outside. Winter is way worse for me, you know? It, it just feels claustrophobic, mm-hmm. it's dark, and like every time I walk outside, I have to wear all these like constrictive clothes, you know? Because it's just, it's super cold and I want to stay warm. So, logging out was nice from, I guess, everything. Like, I want to do that, like, weekly, at least. Just have a moment where I say, like, I'm on nobody's time, mm-hmm. you know? It's just me. I think that was really good for my mental health. Um, we use the term mental health a lot mm-hmm. now, and it's actually a pretty recent term. I have... I've. Uh, in Jonathan Haidt's book, The Cuddling of the American Mind, I was telling you about, uh, he does talk about maybe some of the dangers of the term mental health, which is a really interesting idea, but when we say health, mm-hmm. we think it's mortal, so like it can kill you. Yeah. Which suicide is an example of maybe some emotional states can kill you, literally, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it is a health. It's a, it is a discipline of health. You could say. And keeping us mentally healthy saves us lots of money mm-hmm. in terms of medical expenses. And it does keep less people from dying prematurely. Uh, what do you think about the term mental health? I think I use it because everyone else uses it. I think it, we use it probably a little too much. Like it's one of those buzzwords that's really mm. trendy today to talk about mental health. But I think it is important to focus on we do have, like, our physical health, our mental health. Mm-hmm. We should have good social health. We should be healthy in all aspects of our life. Right. But it also is also just focused on, like, our general well-being is a factor of all of those things. Right. So they're, they're definitely connected. Uh, when I'm physically healthy, like, when I exercise and eat healthy food, I also feel mentally better. You know, they feed into each other well. Yes. Uh, would you say, how would you describe the term spiritual health? And does it play any role in people being, what world is, it's hard for some people to wrap their heads around, mm-hmm. what the heck is a spiritual health? But I do think spirituality is a component of humanity. Oh, definitely. E- even for people who aren't religious, I think. Maybe spirituality doesn't mean to them a theism mm-hmm. or a type of theology, but a spirituality is, 
I don't know. What do you think about this term spirituality and spirituality? So I think spiritual health, at least for me, I feel like that's between you and God and feeling like even though maybe you're you're making mistakes, but you feel that you can overcome those mistakes through Christ and through the atonement, you can change, you can become better. Um, I think spiritual health is really important to your mental health. So there's this term called scrupulosity. It's basically a form of OCD. So people get so focused on the fact that they're messing up, they're making mistakes, and they feel the need to repent basically constantly for everything that they do. And that imbalance is really like hard on their mental and physical health because it plays a role into both of those. Um, and then to answer sort of the other question that you asked, I think spiritual health is... I think it's really just plays into like how you are as a person and whether you're like truly happy with yourself. So even if you're not following like a particular religion, are you like happy with what you're doing with like the moral choices that you're making? Do you feel that you're living up to who you should be as a person? Mm -hmm. And it's easier to define that I feel like in a religious setting but yeah, I totally agree that everyone has their own like form of religion, at least, even if it's not like an organized one. Yeah. For me, uh, the term spirituality, I think the word wonder, mm-hmm. you know, the, a sensation of uh, something greater, which I think is really uh, standard in the, the organizations that we have, you know, come up with central texts for and theologies for, have to do with like, there's something greater than you. You can feel it in these kind of places, you know. I think in the East, it's um, it's emphasized that you feel this kind of way when you're in beautiful nature, you mm-hmm. know, and you feel this oneness with the things around you. I love that. I think yeah. that's a beautiful description that we can probably borrow from more in the West. Uh, we are more centrist focused, you know. The idea of the American individual is mm-hmm. also a very Christian idea, you know yes. that. You are your own person. Your salvation is between you and God, you know? And even a Puritan idea, this uh, the righteousness of the constant self-judgment and the judgment of others because you're doing them a favor, you know, and you're picking these different mm-hmm. things out of other people so you can help them, you know? Which both of those philosophies can be weaponized. Um, so the, that's what I think of when I hear wonder. And I... I hear people describe that in non-religious ways, maybe, mm-hmm. but spiritual ways every time. You know, people describe this wonder like, man, I was doing this, I was working in healthcare, I was caring for this old person, you know? They said they had no family left. Mm-hmm. And when I was helping them, I felt this other, you know, extra physical sensation that this connection that I made with this person was really special. And when I helped them, I was almost moved to tears because I just had this this feeling of wonder, like, wow, what's going on? There's something beautiful about human relationships. You go home from something like that and you feel like yeah, your life has more meaning. So I brought this up because spirituality is, I think, a critical component of mental health. I see all of my health intertwined. And when my spiritual health declines, so does my mental health. It's mm-hmm. totally true. 
And when I feel good about my relationships, which I think intersects maybe emotional and spiritual health a little bit, I feel wonder when I hang out with people I love. I'm like, wow, I can't believe how much I love this person. Um, so I think they definitely are related. Um, well, I'm going to jump in and say that religion is really important to people's mental health because it also gives people like a very like set community. So for instance, we're at BYU where basically everyone at this like university of 30,000 or so people, we're all in these wards of like 150 to like 200 mm-hmm. people. And this gives you a community, something that you're supposed to be a part of and it's built in. And so community is a really important part of mental health. Like it's not just enough for you to, at least spiritually, it's not enough for you to have a good relationship with God and then to completely ignore your fellow men. Because mm-hmm. the first commandment obviously is to love the Lord thy God. But the second is like unto it, which is to love thy neighbor as thyself and to build that community of Christ. That's it. And 150 to 200 is even in the sweet spot of Mm -hmm. us being a tribe. Yeah. (laughs) A group of hunter-gatherers. Like, we love group sizes like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's fascinating. And we don't get bigger than that, you know? After that, we start to split them in half. Yep. So I do think that's fascinating. We're definitely not the only system that devises groups into sizes like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we even have different roles, you know. There's a, the, the spiritual leader, a bishop, you know, and they have this type of divine authority, you know. Uh, just like a chief mm-hmm. in a tribe long ago. Like, there's, uh, there's a divine form to a community, I think. I, and yeah, and like, especially like in our church with how we really emphasize like everyone playing like an active role. Like it's not where you just go to church, the preacher preaches, and then you leave and mm-hmm. you go home. But in our church, the members of the congregation are the one who, who give the talks, who say the prayers. They lead the songs and calling switch all the time. And callings are a really important part of mental health. I've realized that since coming to college. So I come from... In Mississippi and come from a fairly small congregation about like 60 to 70 people and so I was always used to the idea of like you know having two callings is normal and like always being super involved and you have to be active and then I came to BYU and it was like a really big shock for me like my first year where I didn't have a calling I was never asked to like speak in church never asked to say any prayers like basically i would show up to church i'd listen to the talks i'd go to sunday school listen sometimes if i really felt like it i might talk but not super not participating a lot and it was really hard for me my freshman year to just not have that like sense of almost sense of purpose anymore right so actually this year i prayed that i would have a calling i prayed for like five weeks like in the temple that i would get a calling I didn't until like three weeks ago (laughs) so it didn't necessarily worked out but I sort of I made the choice to give myself almost like my own calling to participate more to like Mm. join things like word choir and we have like a come follow me study group that I joined and to participate in like my FHE group and always go to word prayer and speak up in Sunday school just so that I almost felt like I had like a purpose to be at church like I wasn't there just to consume but there to also put some of myself into it yeah wow that's 
That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> we, it's hard to do that. Yeah. It's hard to like, you know, pull yourself up and give yourself a purpose in your community. Mm-hmm. I, I'm of the thought, I mean, unless you're, I don't know, Bear Grylls on an expedition, everybody's in a community. Even Bear Grylls is. I mean, he's got the camera crew there, too. Yeah. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, we seem to be around other people. And there's a community. And I think what you just said is really beautiful, that we are even capable as humans to assign ourselves a role in a community. Now, I think community can also be super dangerous, you know? Uh, community, they can assign you roles that you don't feel like fit with you. Yeah. They can give you roles that are demeaning. And I, I've also thought sometimes the approach we take when we see struggling people in our in our community mm-hmm. is reducing in a, in a sense that, oh, this person is, you know, for example, they're introverted. And we see that almost as like a deficit to their character. Like, yeah. oh, I'm so sorry you have to be introverted. And you can't be cool and extroverted like me and my friends who have. Are colleagues. you an extrovert, Isaac? Uh, everyone's an ambivert. They're somewhere in the middle. And okay. Do you lie more towards extroversion? Do I get energy from interacting with people? Yes, uh, for the most part. But I also, I really like introspection. Mm-hmm. And so let's. I would have so much fun going to a party on Friday night, but if I. Uh, didn't have enough time to wake up and think about it and write down my thoughts on the next day, then I would have stayed too late at the party. Does that make yeah. sense? I don't really, I still don't really know how to describe myself because I'm also in the process of self discovery. I've been experimenting a lot with my BYU community, as you could mm-hmm. say, see how I really feel about things. Uh, but I don't know, that's a problem that I've, I've experienced in communities. I don't feel like, I don't think extroversion should be seen as. A, the more extroverted you are, the better you are as a person. I think that's a bad statement. I would agree. And But we lean towards giving extroverted people these responsibilities, mm-hmm. and we feel like they're the ones who will really serve because they're willing to be energized by their interactions with others and so on. There are truths. Introverts and extroverts do generally have different skill subsets. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean... Man, extroverts, introverts don't, when we infantilize someone in Mm -hmm. order to help them, or when we have to step up somewhere and act like someone else's savior in order to serve them, I just feel like that's an overstep, and it kind of defeats the purpose of the service itself. So, I think that goes back to the idea of, like, perceived burdensomeness, because people... I think need to feel that they matter for what they can put into society. And if they just feel like everyone's reaching out to them, then it doesn't really work as much as if then they're also reciprocating and doing that to other people. And it's going to be different at different times in your life. Like if you're really struggling, like say you've lost like a family member, then yes, like having people reach out to you that's like really helpful but then the next time like someone else close to you also has a death in their family then also stepping up and saying like hey I made you dinner can I bring it by tonight and being there for people and like having a purpose is really important and I think we do definitely fall into the trap of like oh like she's quiet like 
she probably doesn't even want to do this and just sort of assuming things about people but I think sometimes you just have to give people responsibilities and like help them through it but then like people will step up and lead like as they need to yeah I totally agree uh I had another thought about people's responsibilities in groups let's see if I can remember it because I was thinking about what you were saying as you said it which is probably what I'm supposed to do (laughs) Oh, I'll tell you what. Uh, This is from my personal experience. Um, I know the kind of support that I like, and I think it's different Mm -hmm. between people. I know that the kind of support I like, um, for example, some people respond to self-deprecating thoughts. People Mm -hmm. express those. Probably people who feel like they're a burden. We'll kind of say that as a joke, maybe, Mm -hmm. or very seriously. Uh, and I in a kind of cynical way don't try to tell people that all of their uh, ideations I shouldn't use ideations I'm not talking about suicidal mm-hmm. ideations well you can have ideations of other kinds yeah I, ideations of other kinds um, that I don't think they're necessarily untrue I mean you could say man I'm a bad person because I did this. Well, it's not true that you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. It is true that you did this thing. And you have to move through it. But like, I see frequently people feel like, in order to support you, I have to pretend like you're a perfect person. Yeah. But what's really happening is an illogical conclusion is being drawn. That because of these factors, I look like this. I don't have these things. I have been treated like this in the past. My, work, my life isn't worth living. It's the connection from point A to point B that's untrue. Mm -hmm. It could be true that you were treated very unfairly by other people earlier in your life. It could be true that you made a serious mistake that harmed other people or yourself. Those things are totally true. Uh, But let's work through that. It turns out there's a way to work through that. It turns out there's a way to say, I've made a mistake, but I can forgive myself. I'll ask the people who I wronged for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And... I don't know, to me, the kind of advice where the only way to make you feel better is to to get you to escape the reality mm-hmm. that you're experiencing, I feel like does a lot of harm, actually. It has to me, at least in the way that I receive support. Mm-hmm. When people say, let's entertain this, let's maybe be cynical. When people kind of j- joke for me yeah. about the things that I've done wrong, not in a rude way, mm-hmm. but in a way that's like, this is funny because it happens to everyone, you know? I, I've experienced tragedy before. This is one of them. It's kind of funny. Uh, shows me, wow, people get over these tragedies and can joke about them. Or, wow, people make mistakes and it's just part of the human condition. So it's acceptable and I can accept myself. Yeah. Uh, at least that's one way. So I guess I'm offering for anyone who's listening who also experiences that. That's pretty normal. Uh, I definitely feel that way. Yeah. I would also add that even experiencing suicidal thoughts, those are also a normal thing. It's not definitely not something that you should live with alone, but I can't remember the statistic, but it was like a good portion of everyone in America at one point in their life, they will be depressed. They And a good portion of those, a good percentage of those people who are depressed will um, often have suicidal thoughts attached to that. And I think we just... We almost need to open up the conversation a little bit more. Like, we've gotten really good about saying, oh, like, I'm depressed. And, like, 
in society in recent years but we also need to say like oh like I've had these thoughts but it's okay for me not to listen to them like I don't have to listen to them like it's other people have them too but I'm not alone in this and here's what I can do to help that other people have had this problem here's what they did maybe not everything will work for me but something will and I can find a way out Mm. do you mind if I give my concluding words and you do afterwards have any thoughts that you might have had unless there's anything else you want to talk about I don't think I have anything okay I this is here's what I learned um that last thing that you said is hopeful that a lot of people think mm-hmm. this way. And that is, uh, you know, every every great solution began with identifying the problem. So this is definitely a crucial step. And I think uh, tackling the big problem, which is how do we help people feel like their lives are worth living? Which I think is one of the most beautiful problems mm-hmm. to tackle, honestly. Not just in the sense so that they don't take their own lives, but in the sense that they... Are happy. Are happy, you know? That they have enough good to even share and construct mm-hmm. a better world around them. It's very beautiful. So, yeah, I, I think it's nice to talk about that. I also learned about the human need for community and connection that I think uh, I, think I should think about it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I should think about myself in relation to others more and I think I should think about other people more you know and Mm -hmm. just consider the needs of others and I also really liked what we talked about spirituality I think spirituality is something that uh, as as a child if you're you know a lot of adolescents might listen to this if you're an adolescent you just went from a spirituality that was prescribed to you to a, a spirituality which is now a self-prescription. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, sometimes difficult change. And whatever organization that you practice, perhaps a organized religion in, or maybe outside of a religion, what spirituality you, you experience, that you practice, um, you eventually, in your quest to become an adult, are going to have to figure that out for yourself in a personal respect. And I think... To have the healthiest emotional capacity, to have a strong brain, mm-hmm. <laughs> strong emotional health, you need to discover spirituality for yourself, what it means for you to feel like you're in line with the greater part of the universe, you know, with the other forces, with the divine, whatever you'd like to, however you experience that, and understand what spiritual health, how to, how to exercise your spiritual health as a person. And thanks for uh, having this conversation so you can teach me those things. Yeah. Um, I would just like to add that if you are a person who is struggling with suicidal thoughts or with depression, or if you're even just not happy with the way your life is, you can change it. Um, It often seems really hard at first, and it is, but you can Take a good look at your life. Talk to people close to you, your friends, family, um, licensed medical professionals, and figure out what you need to do that will make you happier. Maybe that's 
doing more with other people and building a community. Maybe that's having more of a purpose in your life. Maybe it's getting medical help and taking medications and seeing a therapist regularly. But there is help out for you out there for you because not only do you want to belong and to not be a burden on society, the people around you also don't want to be burdens. And you can give them a purpose and a reason to be a part of their community by letting them help you. I think that's something I really struggle with as a person is to let other people help me. And it's hard. We don't like to be vulnerable. But I think you have to start there and open up a conversation. Um, If you're a person who sees other people around you that they're struggling, it's scary to open up a conversation. You never, you don't want to hurt someone. You don't want to necessarily make it worse. But just try and um, just reach out and be kind towards yourself and towards other people. Thanks for listening. That was the TMI podcast. Take us how we are, and we'll talk to you next time.